Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Nathan Connolly. This week and next, the Backstory team is off. Yay, summer. So we're going to do something a little different. We're going to play pieces from other podcasts that have featured great historical stories. We'll hear from the podcast Curious City, produced out of Chicago's WBEZ, and Tripod, a podcast produced by New Orleans public radio station WWNO. We'll also dig up a story from the Backstory Archives. This week's topic is local history, but the stories we've collected explore themes that resonate far beyond a given city's limits. At the same time, they illuminate some of the history that makes each of these places unique. We'll start in Chicago. WBEZ's Curious City is an initiative that investigates questions from listeners about all aspects of life in the Windy City. This particular story zeroes in on one aspect that makes Chicago such a distinctive place, its strong sense of neighborhood identity. A listener who hadn't grown up in the city wanted to know, were the stories she'd heard of a so-called Nazi neighborhood true? Now, we should warn listeners that this piece has frank descriptions of racism, anti-Semitism, and violence. Some of the audio features an especially disturbing racial slur. We'll let Curious City audio producer Jesse Dukes take it from here. Hello. And a very pleasant good morning, young person. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning to you. Thank you for making the time. It's gotten a little shabbier over the years. Yeah, same building though, right? Same building. Uh, we're on uh, West 71st Street in the Marquette Park area. And what are we looking at right now? We're looking at a building that's uh, a little worse for wear. The windows are broken out now and boarded up from the inside. It was the headquarters of the National Socialist White People's Party, uh, better known as the Chicago Nazis. This is Larry Langford. He's now a spokesperson for the Chicago Fire Department, but in the 1970s, he was a radio reporter. And he says, as a black man reporting on this building in this neighborhood, that was challenging. What do you, how do you remember it looking in the 1970s? Well, then you had a lot of, uh, you had posters, uh, you had a very nasty sign that was, that was actually on the brick wall facing the west, and I believe it said, beware niggers. What was Market Park's reputation at the time? It was a place that black folks didn't go. You didn't get near it. If you drove down 71st Street or Marquette Road, you kept driving. I knew some guys that came over to Marquette Park, and they were, they were coming over here sort of, ah, oh, that's not true, it doesn't happen, we're just going to go over there and shoot some basketball. They never got to shoot any basketball, and they didn't come out with the basketball either. It was taken away from them, they were beaten. Chicago Nazis, a racist neighborhood. That brings us to our question. It comes from Alex Ann Shaw, and it's based on something a former roommate who grew up in Chicago told her years ago. He told me that there was once a Nazi neighborhood in Chicago, and I wanted to know, is that true? And if so, what was the history of it? Alex has been thinking about this question lately because of current events. The emergence of the so-called alt-right, for example, or vandalized synagogues right here in Chicago. The issue of hate groups and their relationship with the communities around them feels timely. 
As you heard from Larry Langford, there was a group of neo-Nazis headquartered in Marquette Park in the 70s. And this group in Chicago, for a few years, was more successful at getting attention than any other American Nazi group. They were even satirized in the Blues Brothers. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. So why did these neo-Nazis get so much attention? And what was their relationship to their home neighborhood, Marquette Park? To answer that, let's step away from Chicago and start with George Lincoln Rockwell, the founder of the neo-Nazi movement in the United States. In the 1960s, Rockwell was desperate to spread his message. What we are out to exterminate is traitors to this country. The white race isn't going to tolerate any more treason and race fixing in this country. Rockwell invented American neo-Nazism. He denied the Holocaust happened, said black people were an inferior race, said communism was a Jewish plot, and desegregation, that was also a Jewish plot. The lawyer that's putting all these Negroes into the Southern colleges and universities is Jake Greenberg, a Brooklyn Jew, another one with a communist record. Rockwell's group dressed in Nazi uniforms, marched with swastika flags, often on the Washington Mall in D.C. And, as has happened over and over in history, they challenged America's commitment to free speech rights. Some localities tried to shut down their speeches and marches. But according to Mark Potok at the Southern Poverty Law Center, Rockwell's neo-Nazis were largely ignored. By and large, they were seen as a kind of freak, marginal phenomenon in American society. They weren't taken seriously at all. Uh, And in fact, very large numbers uh, of newspapers and television stations uh, agreed to simply not cover them. Uh, They were lobbied by a number of different Jewish organizations at the time. According to Potok, this strategy, called the media quarantine, infuriated Rockwell. He wanted to be taken seriously, wanted neo-Nazism to be a mainstream political party. So he struggled to get attention any way he could. You know, this is in the era of hippies and love buses and people painted up with psychedelic colors and so on. Rockwell's response to that was to initiate a national tour with not a love bus, uh, as the hippies were saying, uh, but what he called the hate bus, a VW bus uh, with swastikas painted all over it and slogans about uh, hating non-whites and so on. Rockwell's quest for attention drew him to Chicago in 1966. That year, Martin Luther King organized a series of marches in the southwest side to protest housing segregation. In Marquette Park, local white people rioted, rushing the marchers, throwing bricks and bottles. King was hit on the back of his head. Oh, I've been hit so many times, I'm immune to it. (laughs) Rockwell must have read about this in the papers and thought, Marquette Park sounds like my kind of place. Because within two weeks, he was in Chicago handing out brochures and calling desegregation a Jewish plot to weaken the white race. It was the beginning of the Nazi relationship to Marquette Park. Rockwell organized a so-called White People's March in Chicago's southwest side. More than 100 people from the area joined him with white t-shirts that read, White Power. The march was written up in the New York Times. This was arguably Rockwell's biggest mainstream success. And it didn't happen in the Deep South. It happened on the southwest side of Chicago. Rockwell was assassinated within a year, and his neo-Nazis struggled for attention without their flamboyant leader. But they had made an impression on Chicago and on a man named Frank Collin. You really think that you can pull off a white 
America in your lifetime? Absolutely. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be wasting my time. What are you going to do with all those people? Well, if we can send white men to the moon, I'm sure we can send the niggers back to Africa. That's Colin. He was originally from Chicago and was one of Rockwell's followers in the 1960s. In 1970, three years after Rockwell was assassinated, Colin set up a Chicago neo-Nazi headquarters in Marquette Park. It was just a few blocks away from the site where somebody threw an object that hit Martin Luther King. Colin called his building Rockwell Hall. He had a revolving crew of one or two dozen recruits live with him in the building, which he called a barracks. They had, uh, you know, sleeping bags and couches and it was just a CD upstairs. J. Ross Bauman is a journalist who had unusual access to Rockwell Hall. He went undercover with the neo-Nazis in the 70s, and he says the so-called barracks seemed more like a boys' club. Uh, they didn't have a lot of leisure time comfort. In fact, I don't even really recall if they had a working television set. They would listen to speeches that Frank had given, that he had recorded on audio tape. That was a favorite pastime. But mostly what they were doing was planning for, you know, how are we going to have a smoother operation next time we make a, you know, a rally in the park. So this is why our questioner Alex heard there was a Nazi neighborhood. In the early 1970s, they stuck to the southwest side in nearby white-only suburbs like Cicero and Berwyn. They would hand out white power t-shirts and newspapers. White power newspaper right here! And they tapped into fears about integration. Stick together, white people. Keep them from ruining our community. You know what we mean. And just like Rockwell, the original neo-Nazi, Their goal was to become a mainstream political movement. But in the early 70s, Collins' group was no more than a curiosity. The papers sometimes ridiculed them, but mostly ignored them. Buzz Alpert felt they should not be ignored. I beat Frank Collin into unconsciousness twice, and I will never forget the second time. I knocked him out, had him on the ground, and I kicked him a couple times. Alpert was the chair of the Illinois chapter of the Jewish Defense League, a group that opposed anti-Semitism. He led the JDL to a Nazi march in Berwyn, and he says he barred the Nazis' way on the sidewalk. And I remember taking Frank Collin as assistant. He walked up to me and he said, who are you? And I said, JDL. And I just reached out, took the two of them by the throat, and dove at them, knocked them both out. And we had one hell of a fight. We were out number two to one. We licked the streets up with them, and the Nazis were stunned that they had been beaten by Jews. Stunned. Couldn't believe it. This is Buzz Alpert's side of the story, and I can't verify every detail, but film footage shows fights did happen, with Alpert in the middle, punching, kicking, grappling. The only thing that hateful people understand is to beat the living hell out of them. I felt it had to be met force with force. And I watched and I noticed that some of the Nazis, after taking terrible beatings, didn't come back. It was no longer fun to march around in a Halloween costume with little mustaches and all the crap, you know, the haircuts that look like Hitler. Oh my God, how stupid. Uh, that they didn't come back. It was, it was painful to get beaten. I can't confirm any Nazis quit because of the fighting. They may have. But in one film, a fight lasts only a few seconds before the police break it up. You can see Frank Collin, a short, pudgy guy with black hair and a floppy part. He's bleeding from his nose, bleeding from the back of his head, but it looks like he's enjoying the attention. Find it behind me! Back there! 
And that's how it went for years. The neo-Nazis hold a march. The JDL shows up. They scuffle. The police break it up. If Colin was lucky, he'd make page two of the local papers. But in 1977, Colin, maybe by accident, found a way to get a lot more attention. That year, the city of Chicago passed a law making it almost impossible to get a permit to march in public parks. So Colin applied for permits to demonstrate in several Chicago suburbs, including the village of Skokie. This was a big deal because Skokie had thousands of Holocaust survivors as residents. Imagine if you had survived a death camp in Europe, made a home in the U.S., and 30 years later, men in Nazi uniforms wanted to march through your town. This is from an interview with a Holocaust survivor identified as D. Stern. It is not easy as a survivor to relive it. It's terrible pain. Just like my heart would be crying. Out of respect for the survivors, Skokie denied Colin his permit. But Colin saw a chance to get more attention. He complained his free speech rights were being violated and went to the American Civil Liberties Union to file a lawsuit. At the time, David Goldberger was legal director for the Illinois chapter. Was it uncomfortable when he first showed up? Um, of course. It was um, not something anyone looked forward to. Uncomfortable might be an understatement here. Goldberger is Jewish and definitely opposed to racism. And he's talking to a neo-Nazi, a man who routinely used the most offensive racial slurs, a man who once referred to Jews as, quote, the most obnoxious, insane people in the world. And this neo-Nazi was asking Goldberger and the ACLU to help him while he terrorized the Jewish community. And Goldberger decided to do it. The ACLU's position was that the First Amendment applies equally to everybody, no matter their ideology, so long as they play by the rules of the game. Goldberger's decision to represent neo-Nazis was unpopular to say the least. In fact, Buzz Alpert, that guy from the JDL you heard fighting Nazis, he's not over it. I like to beat his face. To this day? To this day. I have never lost the ardor of a Jewish guy defending a Nazi. The anger that I felt for him. To me, Goldberger's free speech and all his other jazz didn't mean a thing to me. I, he was a Jew. And he was, he was contributing to their success. For his part, Goldberger says representing Colin took a personal toll. Many of the survivors and the people in Skokie who opposed Colin going, they reminded me of my relatives. I understood why they were feeling the way that they did. And it doesn't feel good to be... Um, perceived as such a villain by people who you basically uh, share an identity with. The ACLU's reputation took a hit. Here was this supposedly liberal organization representing the neo-Nazis in Skokie. The organization lost nearly a third of its membership in the late 70s. After a year and three separate court cases, Frank Collin won the right to march in Skokie. There was talk of violence. Skokie residents planning to bring guns to the march, and there was concern for the mental health of the Holocaust survivors. So the U.S. Department of Justice helped find a compromise. The neo-Nazis would be allowed to demonstrate in Chicago after all, if they stayed out of Skokie. Both sides declared victory. Skokie had kept the Nazis out. And here's one of the neo-Nazis, dripping with sarcasm. When our rights were restored, we canceled the Skokie demonstration 
and spared all these poor Jews the horror of seeing the swastika. All we asked for was our right to free speech in neighborhoods where we were accepted. Neighborhoods where they were accepted. This brings us all the way back to our original question. Did Chicago have a Nazi neighborhood? But Alex's question was inspired by a deeper curiosity about hate groups and the relationship they have to the broader community. I'll get to whether it makes sense to call Market Park a Nazi neighborhood in a minute. But for a moment, let's consider the broader dilemma posed by the existence of neo-Nazis. It's still relevant. Today, the neo-Nazis' ideological cousins, the so-called white nationalists or identitarians, are out in the open. Take Richard Spencer, who coined the term alt-right. Remember his speech in which members of the audience responded with the stiff-armed Nazi salute? Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! That same white nationalist famously got punched in the face by a protester, prompting cheers, memes, criticism. So once again, we're asking, do hate groups have a right to free speech? How should a community respond to hate groups? Ignore them? Counter-protests? Punch them in the face? So when one asks the question, which you did, do they have a right to express their views even if they're abhorrent? The answer is yes. Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. He demonstrated against the neo-Nazis in the 1970s as a teenager. And he could actually have some say in whether a hate group gets a permit. But we have a responsibility for those of us that disagree to confront that hatred. And I think that confrontation and exposure, we will win uh, people's hearts and minds. Their, Their language, their views, even in the worst of moments, does not speak to who we are on a fundamental level. One way of of phrasing the question is, how should that confrontation take place? Another way in the (laughs) modern parlance is, is it okay to punch a Nazi? Uh, So uh, the confrontation is a battle of ideas and a battle of uh, justice. I I don't think you have the right to physically assault uh, a neo-Nazi, no matter how much I may agree with it. Personally, you don't have a right to do that. But it wasn't violent confrontation or nonviolent confrontation that defeated the Chicago neo-Nazis. In 1978, after they won their court case against Skokie, Frank Collins' group kind of defeated themselves. First, a rival from a Nazi group in Washington, D.C. exposed Colin as a Jew, which it turns out his father was Jewish. He immigrated to the U.S. as Max Simon Cohen, a survivor of the Dachau concentration camp. Then, in 1980, members of the Chicago group apparently tipped the police to Colin's stash of child pornography, and Colin was arrested for taking indecent liberties with children. He went to prison for five years, and his group faded away. Since then, neo-Nazis in Chicago haven't managed to get that kind of attention or inspire that kind of anger and fear. Back to the question of the Nazi neighborhood. I think one of the reasons the neo-Nazis were so successful in Chicago was their relationship to their neighborhood, Marquette Park. Consider, in 1978, just after the Skokie affair, Rahm Emanuel went to a neo-Nazi rally in Marquette Park. His group of counter-protesters were cordoned off by the police. We were led into an unbelievably hostile circle where people were jeering us, throwing things at us, and uh, there was no co- physical confrontation, but you, didn't, you did feel physically uh, threatened. Because I remember a lot of guys in white T-shirts, a lot of guys just screaming at us. 
you know, things like you dirty little Jew, uh, go back to where you came from, etc. You can see this in a documentary. Those people screaming at the 18-year-old Rahm Emanuel were not the neo-Nazis. There's evidence they're just people who live in Marquette Park or nearby. Some of them say things like, this is our neighborhood. There's other footage from 1976, which shows neo-Nazi Frank Collin blustering about resisting integration. This is our community. This is our neighborhood. We're not going to let any rabble of jungle primitives come in here and think that they can force us out. In the film, a middle-aged white man from the neighborhood comes into Rockwell Hall to put money into a cash jar and shake Collins' hand. Well, the best thing I can say for you, Frank, you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate it. This was only 30 years after World War II. People in the neighborhood had fought against Nazi Germany. Some had died. And not everybody in Marquette Park was okay with the neo-Nazis. There's footage of local people denouncing them, even arguing with them. So 40 years later, it's hard to know. Was Marquette Park a, quote, Nazi neighborhood? Did most of the people in the neighborhood support the neo-Nazis? Were people ambivalent? Unsure? It's worth thinking about the sign Larry Langford remembers on the wall of Rockwell Hall, the one with the racial slur. And I believe it said, beware niggers. Langford's memory is almost correct. I found a photo, and that message actually began with the words, stop the, as in stop them from taking our neighborhood. You could see it all the way down the block. That sign was there for years in the 70s. At the time, several nearby majority white neighborhoods were rapidly desegregating. Marquette Park was one of the last, a holdout. And if enough people there wanted, they could have evicted Frank Collin and the neo-Nazis. But they didn't. I spoke to a lot of people familiar with Marquette Park in the 70s. They all told me people there may have thought the neo-Nazis were weird, maybe extreme. But resistance to integration, that was widespread. And so they allowed the neo-Nazis a home base. That was helpful. They could recruit followers, print flyers, organize rallies, raise money without fear of disruption. Without that space, Frank Collin and his neo-Nazis may not have had the opportunity to terrorize Skokie and the rest of Chicago. That was from WBEZ's Curious City podcast. It tries to answer questions Chicagoans have about their city. Jesse Dukes was the reporter and producer with research by Maggie Sivett and Catherine Nagasawa and was edited by Shannon Heffernan. Funding for Curious City comes from the Conant Family Foundation. You can find more stories at wbez.org slash Curious City or search for Curious City wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll travel to New Orleans to investigate the monument of a popular politician that never got built. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Oh, and before we get back to the show, we wanted to tell you about Backstory's online book club, Bookstory. Each month, moderator Melissa Gismondi chooses a new book about American history to discuss with club members. When you sign up, you'll receive a welcome packet, an excerpt of the book, and access to a private Facebook discussion group. This month's selection is Eric Foner's Battles for Freedom, The Use and Abuse of American History. 
At the end of the month, we'll host a Facebook Live discussion with Eric about the book. So go to BackstoryRadio.org and sign up for Book Story today. I have. We're back, playing selections from some of the Backstory staff's favorite podcasts. We just heard Curious City's investigation into a group of white supremacists who gave their part of town a reputation as a quote-unquote Nazi neighborhood. Now we're going to turn to another show that highlights the history of its city. Tripod, New Orleans at 300, is a podcast that explores the Big Easy's history as the city approaches its 300th anniversary in 2018. The podcast is produced out of public radio station WWNO. Now, New Orleans was in the news recently as the city took down several monuments honoring the Confederacy. Removing these monuments was so controversial that the workers had to wear bulletproof vests, masks, and work under cover of darkness. But Tripod's host and producer, Lane Kaplan-Levinson, explored the history of a New Orleans monument that never was. Here's Lane with that story. New Orleans has been in the national spotlight over removing four city monuments, all for the lost cause of the Confederacy. These were all erected decades after the Civil War and the Reconstruction Era. But long before those monuments even went up, a different monument was supposed to go up, one honoring Reconstruction's success. But that never happened. This is Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. introduce you to a guy named Brian Mitchell. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of Arkansas Little Rock, and he's from New Orleans. He told me about a guy named Oscar James Dunn. Ever heard of him? I hadn't either. But right around the time that this guy Oscar Dunn died, here's what a journalist wrote. That there'll be three pictures that hang in the home of every African-American from that day forward. Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and Oscar James Dunn. Well, we know about Honest Abe. We know about Douglas, or most of us do, including that, you know, he's dead. But Dunn? Not so much. I wondered how Brian knew about him. As a child, I'd spend my days after school with my great-grandmother, and she'd tell us family stories. And family stories always sort of led to important patriarchs or matriarchs in the family. And I'm a distant relative to Oscar James Dunn. Dunn is Brian's great, great, great uncle. So his family talks about Dunn, and then Brian goes to third grade. It was back in 1976. The teacher asked if anyone was related to anyone in Louisiana history that was famous. And I said, I'm related to Oscar James Dunn. And she said, well, who's that? And I said, well, he's the first black lieutenant governor, not just for Louisiana, but for the entire nation. And she said, there's never been a, a black lieutenant governor in Louisiana. And eight-year-old Brian was like, uh, yeah, there was. And he's my uncle. What's even crazier is that this man, Oscar James Dunn, the great, great, great uncle of Brian Mitchell, was not only the first black lieutenant governor of the United States, he was born a slave. Dunn was born in New Orleans about 1822. Um, he was born to a slave mother. Dunn's mom then fell in love with a free man of color named James Dunn, who then buys her and her two kids for $800. And when Dunn turns 11, he's free. 
that changes Dunn's life forever. It changes him from a slave to being a free person of color. Now Dunn can go to school, and he's good at school. And he learns a trade, plastering, and he's good at that too. He grows up and becomes the head of the Black Masonic Lodges for Louisiana. Then the Civil War ends and Reconstruction begins. African Americans are all over the South. They're released and people need their labor for agriculture. So he opens an office uh, and what he does there is write contracts for the recently released slaves so they can work on plantations and not be cheated. Basically, Dunn tries to make sure newly freed people actually get paid for their labor through writing those contracts. And to no surprise, he's good at that too, which has people around Dunn telling him he'd make a good politician. Because people of color, mainly those who were free prior to emancipation, like Dunn, were now entering politics. So Dunn runs for office and gets elected. Nick Weldon works for the Historic New Orleans Collection. While doing research over there, he discovered Oscar Dunn. He was a radical Republican. You know, they were the progressive party that was trying to extend civil rights to African-Americans, especially in the South. And then there were the Democrats, the ex-Confederates, and Dunn's political rivals. Nick found a quote in the New Orleans Times newspaper where local Democrats described their political opponent. The taint of honesty and of a scrupulous regard for the official proprieties is a serious drawback and innervating a reproach upon the lieutenant governor. Uh, translation, please. Basically, they're like, he is so fair-minded and scrupulous that it's annoying. Got it. His rivals couldn't help but respect him, whether they liked it or not. Dunn used this bipartisan respect to advance his career and get things done. He became a big proponent for universal male suffrage. You know, the right to vote. Civil rights legislation, the integration of public schools. So he did a lot um, against a lot of pressure and in a pretty hostile environment. Hostile is one way of putting it. Or one could say, and may I say, it was crazy times. Things were insane. The Louisiana governor at the time was a man named Henry Warmoth, a white 20-something Republican from New York. He and Dunn were elected on the same ticket in 1868. That's three years after the Civil War ended. Dunn was 20 years older than Governor Warmoth. And at first, he really believed that this young Yankee wanted equality between whites and blacks. But then... The governor betrayed the lieutenant governor. And when it actually came time for him to sign a bill that would protect blacks, he says no. When Governor Warmoth refused to put pen to paper on a civil rights bill, it straight up divided the Republican Party. There's basically a Dunn camp and a Warmoth camp. They had separate police forces, separate conventions. These were two Louisiana Republicans who were supposedly part of the same administration, but were in direct competition. It was complete chaos. There was no, there was no order, uh, but Warmoth was losing his grasp. His political grasp, his power. The Democrats, who used to be the Confederates, they won't accept Governor Warmoth because they see him as a grade-A carpetbagger. And the radical Republicans, especially the African-Americans, realize that Governor Warmoth is working completely against their interests. The next gubernatorial election is around the corner, and there are talks of impeaching Warmoth. Meanwhile, Dunn's career is going great. First of all, if Governor Warmoth is impeached, Dunn would become the first black governor ever. 
And on top of that, rumors are flying that the president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, is considering Dunn for vice president. And then, in November of 1871, Dunn goes to a dinner. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kathan-Levinson. Here's Brian Mitchell again, the descendant of Oscar Dunn. There is a, a public dinner that he's invited to, and thereafter he becomes very sick. And there is speculation that he may have been, as they say, dosed at that particular dinner. Dosed. Nick Weldon. It was after a dinner, um, and sudden violent illness, vomiting, you know, unconsciousness, and... Dunn calls a couple of his close friends in, and two days later, he died, and it was a shock to the city. The official cause of death was congestion of the brain and lungs, I believe. Meaning Oscar Dunn died of natural causes. But there were plenty of people that simply said, that's not what happened. They looked at Dunn's death, and they saw one thing, poison. Some of the symptoms of arsenic poisoning were similar with him. The vomiting, the shivering, and, and all of these things. And a number of doctors wouldn't sign the official medical examiner's report. In fact, four out of seven doctors who examined Dunn refused to sign off on him dying of natural causes. They suspected murder. But the family refused an autopsy. So that was that. Here's Brian Mitchell. We really just don't know what happened to Dunn. We don't know if he died of natural causes for whether um, he had been poisoned by a rival political camp. But there hasn't been any definitive proof. And there have been a number of papers written on Dunn's death. There have probably been more papers written on Dunn's death than Dunn's life. So Dunn is dead at the age of 49 in 1871, at the peak of his political career. With a country in shock, people show up to pay their respects. There were over 50,000 people that turned out for his funeral. Um, of and The composition of the crowd was made, was made up of every facet of New Orleans society, black and white. Including most of Dunn's political rivals, the men who potentially poisoned him. And Governor Warmoth was a pallbearer. It's called the largest funeral in New Orleans history. Uh, and I always point out that it's probably one of the oldest second lines in New Orleans history. There are jazz bands that are there. The second line stretched a mile long from the intersection of Claiborne and Canal, where Dunn's house was, to Magazine Street, and then proceeded to the St. Louis Number 2 Cemetery. Yeah, to say he was well-loved in the city would have been an understatement. Which brings us back to that monument, the one I mentioned in the beginning of this story. Remember the monument that never happened? Yeah, that was meant for Oscar Dunn. The Louisiana legislature uh, passed an act, um, and it says here, this is from 1873, Act Number 57, to incorporate the O.J. Dunn Oscar James Dunn, Monumental Association of Louisiana. 
That's Nick Weldon again from the historic New Orleans collection. The Louisiana state legislature dedicated $10,000 to Dunn's monument, which was a lot of money back then, like a couple hundred G's in today's money. But money never spent. I do not know where the opposition came from. I do not know why the monument was not erected. All I know is that it isn't there. So mystery number one, dude dies unexpectedly. Mystery number two, monument signed by the governor of Louisiana and $10,000 allotted for the erection of this monument does not happen. That's correct. While people were literally writing legislation to memorialize Dunn in this monument, Brian says there's another movement happening to discredit Dunn. He found an old drawing from that time of a Mardi Gras ball held by the crew of Comus. They had an elaborate ball, and in the center of the ball, the king dressed as an ape, a giant ape. It was a massive gorilla costume that the king of Comus wore, saying... The first black lieutenant governor of Louisiana was an ape. I argue that it's at that point that revisionists start trying to take over the narrative and rewrite Dunn as a villain instead of a hero in American history. And Nick says that has a really fast domino effect. When you see this somewhat rising African-American political star at a time of all this strife, the guy dies. And pretty much with him was all of the gains that he had fought for, civil rights, suffrage, integration in public schools. I mean, all that stuff, you know, with the pullback of Reconstruction started to go away after that. At the same time, the Ku Klux Klan is just getting started. The White League is just getting started. So by taking down Dunn, they were able to reinforce notions of black inferiority in Louisiana. So 20 years after Dunn dies, instead of building a monument for a former slave who was on his way to being Veep, the Liberty Place monument goes up to honor an attack by a white supremacist group, the Crescent City White League, against an integrated police force. All of this progress that was made gets immediately wiped off the slate. You have the stories of these people wiped off the slate, too. So 100 years after Dunn dies, his descendant, Brian Mitchell, goes to elementary school in New Orleans, and his teacher tells him that Louisiana never had a black lieutenant governor. My entire life I went to classes, and I loved history, and I, I, you know, I, I heard about Manifest Destiny, and I heard about melting pots, and uh, none of these things uh, seem to to explain my condition as an African-American in the United States. But Dunn did. Do you think, you know, if the monument had been erected, if there was an Oscar Dunn monument, that more people would know who that man was? Most certainly, most certainly. Tripod is a production of WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio, in collaboration with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at UNO. Special thanks to Evan Christopher for the opening theme music and to the entire Tripod editorial committee. You can hear Tripod whenever you want if you subscribe to the podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also find us on social media at Tripod NOLA. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson, and I'll Tripod you later.
It's time for another break. When we get back, a St. Louis newspaper that's been covering crime in an unusual way. But first, a word from today's second sponsor. And before we get back to the show, one more quick message. We're hard at work on a new show about myths in American history. You know, those stories that we like to tell ourselves that are maybe just a little too good to be true. Like a young George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, for instance. Ah, the young George Washington. Too pure for the adult world. Always love that one. (laughs) Then, of course, there's the myth about Irish slaves. Or how about the moon landing? Just kidding. And to be perfectly clear, we know the moon landings did happen, so please, please don't rise about that one. My favorite is the myth of the lion in the sand at the Alamo. You know the one where Colonel William Travis dares any who wish to flee before Santa Ana to cross that line and escape, and none do? Wait, that's not true? No, it's, <laughs> it's not true. So, is there a historical event or character you've always wondered about? Send us your questions at backstory at virginia.edu by July 14th. We'll investigate. And we'll air some of your questions and our findings on an upcoming episode. For our next story, we're going to drop into St. Louis. Now, settle down, get comfortable, and pick up one of the most entertaining local papers you're ever likely to come across, The Evening World. Since 1938, this weekly African-American newspaper has covered crime in St. Louis, and it does so with a style that's all its own, using alliteration and rhyme and often omitting the standard crime-reporting words. The paper has been widely criticized for its casual approach to fact-checking and sensational writing style, but its owner, Anthony Sanders, has no plans to change it. He's been working on the paper since he was 18 years old and makes no apologies. As the world puts it, quote, if that's too much for you, pick up the Times and read the theater reviews, unquote. Here at Backstory, we pride ourselves on finding people who tell history from their own perspective, folks who represent living history. That's one of the things that drew us to this profile of Sanders and the world by Phoebe Judge. She hosts the popular crime podcast, Criminal. I have always taken it as an ultimate compliment when you get someone from a, 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 a daily or a big weekly to tell you that they wish that they could write the style that the world does by eliminating words like accuse, alleged, you know, and just go to supposition. Maybe he was supposed to have done it anyway, but I, I, I take that as a real compliment. The Evening World is an African-American-owned crime newspaper in St. Louis. It's come out every week for 78 years. This is Anthony Sanders, the owner. I flew to St. Louis to meet Anthony. He suggested we meet at his favorite lunch place, Culpepper's. We talked about the city and how newspapers are changing, but mostly we talked about how he thinks and writes about crime. And, as he said... Crime stories in the world don't often include words like accused or alleged. And we call it whirlesque type of writing, where we go right to the nature of whatever the story is. It's almost like a conviction before a conviction. We say right away that you're the killer. You know, let you prove that you're not. Let me be honest with you, if it's going to bring some real respected persons into the story, then we will use the word accused or alleged. 
But most of the time, it's just... It's just straight. <laughs> wanted killer. Not a ledge or accused killer. Just a wanted killer ABC. Right at the top of every edition of The Whirl, it reads, there is power in naming and power in shaming. Not only does the world want to embarrass people who break the law, they do it in a rather playful way, with lots of alliteration and puns and exclamation points. Lunchroom lady bopped in face, bungling bandit bagged and booked, and don't call me a slobber, I'm a real bank robber. For Anthony, this wordplay is one of the greatest parts of working on a story. As it starts to come together, it's like, I guess, a a chef, or say a cook, maybe, more than a chef. A good old-fashioned pot of greens, if you will. As you know, you got the greens and the fat back or whatever, but it's the other little spices that you add that's going to make those greens either memorable one way or the other. Homicide detectives are called H-men and even get nicknames. Charles Knuckles Johnson, Detective Jeff Stone is Stonehard, and Detective Tom Carroll is Pac-Man because he, quote, gobbles up bad guys. And here's the thing. In the world, the police are always the good guys. Each week, the paper gets information from the police department, and sometimes the department gets information from the paper. And I'll put this out there. I think St. Louis Police Department, as well as St. Louis County Police Department, does themselves a lot of harm when they have suspect information, they crack crime, uh, uh, homicide, and they don't share it, especially a photograph. People just do not read words. They look at the words and read the pictures. So you think that they need to be putting out more information? Yes, Mm-hmm. These guys monitor this newspaper, they read it, their friends read it, and anybody that may be associated with it reads it. Now, if you're going to solve a crime, you need to put that on blast, as we would say, to let people know. Criminals are seeing other criminals, they know that they committed homicides on the street. It just emboldens them to do it themselves. According to FBI data from September, St. Louis now has the highest murder rate per capita in the country. The murder rate has increased more than 60% since 2000. And Anthony says the world reports on every single one. There is no homicide that we do not report on. No homicide doesn't make it into the world. That's right. And I'll say that emphatically because we have been accused of not printing certain murders, especially those involving uh, Caucasians. I think it's ludicrous, but people think that that happens. It doesn't. In an era of real-time fact-checking, when journalists are terrified of wrongly assigning blame, not to mention being sued, Anthony Sanders just doesn't care. This is how the world has always done it. As they say, if that's too much for you, pick up the Times and read the theater reviews. But the evening moral has always been criticized, sometimes extremely, all the way back to its very first editions in 1938. Anthony's predecessor, the paper's founder, was a man named Ben Thomas. And when he was criticized, he famously replied, The world has preached purity and condemned crime. Those who don't like it can kiss our behind. The very first editions of The World covered nightlife and celebrity gossip in St. Louis's black community. 
This was during the Jim Crow era, when the daily newspapers wouldn't hire black reporters and rarely covered black neighborhoods. Most mainstream papers in America wouldn't even run African-Americans' obituaries. And one day, Ben Thomas came across a scoop he couldn't turn down. There was a rumor that a couple of high school teachers had been molesting their students. Nobody was reporting on it. Ben got a hold of the police records and ran the story. He had to reprint that edition three times, and the world has been a crime newspaper ever since. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. In the Ben Thomas era, the writing was even more playful. A lot of crimes were written up as jokey little poems. For example, about a man on his way to prison for selling heroin. I will sit and lick my toes and blow snot from my nose. Where I'll end up in life, only God knows. I asked Anthony where the name Evening Whirl comes from. He said he didn't know. He thinks of whirl as in kicking up dust, which is certainly appropriate. But then, when we were researching the story, we came across the phrase in a Mark Twain novel. The novel is called The Gilded Age, and the line reads, Both chatted away in high spirits and made the evening whirl along in the most mirthful manner. Missouri was Mark Twain's boyhood home, and given what we know about Ben Thomas's literary interest, maybe this is how the paper got its name. Ben Thomas retired in 1995, and Anthony Sanders, who'd been helping out since he was 18 years old, took it over. Anthony says he can't write poems like Ben, but he still brings plenty of his own personality to the reporting, once writing that a murder victim was, quote, in a flying casket to hell. And since Anthony took over, he's increased the paper's readership from 4,000 to almost 55,000. The paper has done so well that he's even hired a reporter. Well, it had to take its lumps, but perseverance overruled. And um, what happened is that we had to do some of the things that we know that would help strengthen the paper. We started picking up some of the um, Internet lingo, and incorporating that into it, that helped a little bit because we were told that we were going to go the way of the dodo. But nevertheless, I mean, here we are. Do you have a favorite issue? No, I haven't done it yet. You, it just hasn't happened? I am never, ever satisfied with what happens after it's printed. Uh, Sundays I could be on cloud nine. But by Monday morning, I'm getting ready for the next one. Anthony lays out each edition of the paper in his house, working through the night on Sundays to get it to the printer on time. Then on Monday mornings, he picks them up and personally delivers the papers to stores. He took me along on the route. His first stop is always a BP station at the corner of Jefferson and Clark Avenues. The woman behind the counter said she remembers reading The World when she was a kid back when it was 50 cents. Now it's $1.50. Well, it's a popular paper. We have, what should I say, residential criminals. (laughs) I don't know. Do do you have people who come in and ask for it? Yeah, all the time. I mean, 
it's it sells just as much as the post yeah um it gives us like the daily news constant what's going on in the neighborhood the area who did the most stupidest stuff for the week do you ever have anyone who's kind of comes in and says to you wait is the do you have the evening world yet is yeah, it here yet I might be in the paper yeah i've had people sign the paper you know their signatures because their pictures on there so they come in here to say, oh boy, did I make it? Yeah, they do. I mean, we get quite a few people that come in and want to know if they made the, the weak news. <laughs> this is one of the many contradictions about the paper. It's openly pro-police, a self-described crime-fighting newspaper. And yet, the men and women written up in the pages of the world often see it as a badge of honor. And what we have found is that they perpetrators will have these papers. I mean, I've had that told to me so many times in uh, criminal uh, cases where a lot of times there's been someone, police have been actively looking at for years, and they have been committing crimes continuously, and they know who they are, but they're just trying to get enough information to get warrants, you know what I mean? When they do, they go in the house and there's worlds all over the place. Well, they've been kind of chronological, uh, chronologizing their uh, escapades. <laughs> One of the most persistent criticisms of the evening world is that it's a black-owned newspaper that exploits African Americans in order to sell copies. The St. Louis chapter of the NAACP attempted a boycott of the paper in the mid-'80s. James DeClue, the president of the chapter, called the world the dirtiest, lousiest evidence of lies about a people I've ever seen. I asked Anthony what he thinks about this criticism. I've had a lot of, um, (laughs) I guess you say, talks with myself about this. And it's a question that I always ask myself, would I be a reader of the world? I've been on the paper, but I've been a part of it for so long, I guess it's kind of like, duh, you've been with the paper almost 60 years, or 50 years, and you're only 68 years old, so how much of a choice did you have? But uh, once again, I stand on it that, and I've said that several times to several of our people that uh, always question that, but I'm very, very loyal to it, and I'm very passionate about it. Whether or not you agree with Anthony, the evening world is a piece of history. It's being preserved at Washington University's library in St. Louis. That was our last stop for the day. The librarian who greeted us says students come in every week to study the paper and its representations of race, drugs, and guns. And right now, there's a campus project called Mapping LGBTQ St. Louis. In spite of the salacious and often offensive writing, some of the only surviving historical documentation of gay African Americans in St. Louis is in the world. This is um, Lesbian Mob Queen Faces the Music. Where you see that? Oh, up can you, there. Can you use Lesbian Mob Queen Faces mu- Music? Says the entire city wanted to look at the woman who smashed last week's rural headline story. She so magnificently conducted her stable of women in the stroll. 
and the successful robber of a couple who was passing through the stroll area and thought the girls were in trouble and stopped. But to their sorrow, Diane, 26, taught her protégés to hold on to their money when investigated by police by inserting it in their vaginas. <laughs> and that is what they did. Oh, my God. Yeah. The world has never pretended to be something that it's not. In an edition from 1978, Ben Thomas wrote, The city wonders who it will be. Just take it easy, you will see. Guns will roar and rip like hell, and how the evening whirl will sell. Anthony says that somewhere over the past 78 years, the whirl has become shorthand, a way of saying, be good, so when friends say goodbye, they'll joke, don't let me see you in the world. Criminal is produced by Lauren Spore, Nadia Wilson, and me. Audio mixed by Rob Byers. Alice Wilder is our intern. Special thanks to Russ Henry, Miranda Rechtenwald, and to the archives at Washington University in St. Louis. We're going to end today's show on local history with a piece from the Backstory Archive. A couple of years ago, we did an episode on the history of fire in America. A producer named Chelsea Davis sent us a story from San Francisco. You'll hear the voice of Backstory host Peter Onif first, and then we'll hand to Davis. In the spring of 1906, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake set off a fire that engulfed San Francisco and reduced much of it to ashes. As that inferno bore down on the city's Chinatown neighborhood, there was no question what Lee Yoke Sui had to save. It was the one possession that proved his U.S. citizenship, his birth certificate. That birth certificate, you know, is so important to the Chinese. You always save everything. You have to save everything or else, you know, when you, um, the immigration authorities will always question why you as a Chinese person are here. This is Connie Young Yu, Lee Yoke Sui's granddaughter. At the time that Lee and hundreds of thousands of others fled their homes, the city by the bay was deeply divided. Its steep hills and sand dunes marked the boundaries of race, class, and ethnicity. Everyone knew their place. And for around 25,000 residents of Chinese origin, stepping out of bounds was especially dangerous. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 placed Chinese immigrants on the margins. Acts of racial terror were a daily threat. While Chinatown was a segregated ghetto, it provided its residents with 15 blocks of desperately needed refuge. The devastation the Great Fire of 1906 brought to Chinatown would change that reality in surprising ways. Producer Chelsea Davis takes the story from here. It was around 5 in the morning on April 18 when the ground began to shake under Li Yoksui, a shop owner in Chinatown. He glanced out his kitchen window to see houses collapsing and terrified people rushing through the streets. So Lee gathered his wife and newborn daughter, and together they fled the house. Calls of, the earth dragon is stirring, echoed around them as rumors spread of a fire heading for the neighborhood. Here's Lee's granddaughter again, Connie Young Yu. It was chaotic. 
probably he felt like he was in a war. Yu says her grandfather put his family onto a wagon headed for the bay. Then he went back for that birth certificate. Lee quickly ducked into his store and rustled up what he needed. But as he emerged into the street again, Yu says, a white soldier caught sight of him and assumed he was a looter. And the soldier stabs him with his bayonet. Just like, and my grandfather, he crumpled to the ground and he played dead. He just lay there. Lee escaped with a flesh wound. But as his run-in with the soldiers suggests, the fires engulfing the city that day left Chinese residents exposed to all kinds of social dangers as they fled through unfamiliar neighborhoods. The built environment keeps everyone in their place. So if you're an elite white San Franciscan, you don't have to see the residents of Chinatown unless you go there. This is Andrea Davies, a historian at the Stanford Humanities Center and herself a former firefighter in San Francisco. And so with everything gone, they're watching all these people rush through the city. As the Chinese are leaving their homes in desperation, they're being yelled at to get out and don't turn back. I call it heightened post-disaster racism. And according to Davies, it wasn't just private citizens. She says increased racism during a catastrophe can influence city officials' responses, too. Think of the soldier who mistook Lee Yok Sui for a looter, or the responders tasked with extinguishing the flames. The fire department did very little to stop the fires in Chinatown, and in fact made it worse. If you look at Chinatown, which is nestled right against Knob Hill, where all the elite mansions are, all the water goes, directed by the mayor, to save Knob Hill, and all the dynamite goes into Chinatown. Yeah, dynamite. It was a last-ditch effort to stop the fire from reaching the richest, whitest district. The effort failed, and thanks to the explosives, Chinatown burned all the faster. In the following days, as the embers of Chinatown cooled, the Chinese residents found themselves homeless and newly vulnerable in hostile streets. But things were about to get worse. So many of the city's political and business leaders were actually excited about this social equalizing disaster because it eliminated Chinatown and they thought, we'll never rebuild it. Many whites had seen the neighborhood as a Gomorrah of opium dens, prostitution, and disease. But Chinatown also occupied prime downtown real estate, real estate that the city's power brokers had long been eyeing. In 1904, two years before the fire, then-Mayor James Phelan had asked architect Daniel Burnham to draft some sketches of a new downtown. And in those sketches, there simply is no Chinatown. And so the minute the city goes up in flames, I'm not kidding, I don't think the city's finished burning, and James Phelan is telegraphing Daniel Burnham, send more reports immediately, get them to the hands of the city leaders and business leaders, here's the perfect city. In the days after the fire, the current mayor, Eugene Schmitz, worked fast to make that perfect city a reality. He appointed James Phelan and other powerful leaders to a committee entirely dedicated to relocating Chinatown. The leading proposal punted Chinese residents to the outskirts of town, among the city's slaughterhouses. Davies says the beleaguered Chinese community soon caught wind of the plan. And they fought back, and I think they fought back very intelligently. The Chinese launched their self-defense on multiple fronts. 
first, they simply started rebuilding in Chinatown before others got there. One Chinese-language newspaper, the Changsai Yat Po, made sure Chinese refugees knew their land rights. According to U.S. laws, if the land belongs to the building owner, the landlord has the right to build on his land. Local officials have no right to stop him. Even China's Empress Dowager, Sushi, got involved, sending her consul general from Washington to meet with San Francisco officials. But the most significant move was economic. For decades, San Francisco had been a key hub for lucrative trade with China. So a group of the city's top Chinese merchants wrote to Mayor Schmitz in a language city officials easily understood. And so the negotiation was, okay, you don't want us to come back? We can go to Tacoma, we can go to Portland. So there's a panic of a loss of revenue for the city. By May 10, less than a month after the fire, the mayor dissolved his committee to relocate Chinatown. Filmmaker Felicia Lowe says it was a political victory on an unprecedented scale. They outsmarted and they outplayed the city fathers to fight fire with fire. But the Chinese community took their victory one step further. San Francisco was a blank slate after the fire. So instead of letting the city draw up new architecture, an American-born Chinese merchant named Luk Tin Eli had a plan. The word was, build me a pagoda. Before the fire, Chinatown's architecture had blended in with the rest of San Francisco's Italianate buildings. But Luk Tin Eli's blueprint would make the rebuilt Chinatown into what he described as a new oriental city. He was able to pull together uh, the resources and a committee of uh, like-minded Chinese merchants to hire white architects to create a Chinatown that looked the way white people imagined Chinatown to look. Even though he knew in his own mind that the buildings in China didn't look like this. The result was a Chinatown that Lo calls a Disneyland vision of China. Pagoda-topped buildings, bright reds and golds, and dragon symbols everywhere. It used Western stereotypes to rake in tourist dollars and to give the district a new reputation for cleanliness and safety. Consider it a sort of architectural revenge. Today, Chinatown remains one of San Francisco's most visited neighborhoods. Of course, this makeover didn't change everything. Sinophobia persisted for decades, and Chinese immigrants couldn't even become naturalized citizens until 1943. But even the 1882 naturalization ban had a lot less bite after the fire, because there was one final ironic boon from the 1906 catastrophe that created an influx of immigrants. The fire destroyed the city hall, which maintained all the vital records, birth, death, marriages. So what happened was that some of the Chinese went to city hall claiming that they were, in fact, citizens. And there was no way to disprove it. On one level, many see Chinatown's story as grim. It took a natural disaster, a devastating fire, to give the Chinese a political voice in the city where they'd lived for more than 50 years. But Li Yoksui, the merchant stabbed as he fled, refused to be bitter. If anything, his granddaughter says, the great fire and the fierce fight for Chinatown 
gave the Lee family a greater sense of belonging in their country, the United States. And they felt that somehow being in the earthquake and coming back made them part of the city, that they felt they had a stake in it. Look, we, we were here. We were here and we survived. That was a piece from the 2015 Backstory episode, Where There's Smoke, A History of Fire. Producer Chelsea Davis brought us the story. That's going to do it for today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about American history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And be sure to check in with us next week, where Brian will introduce some compelling podcasts on the history of whiteness in America. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Robin Blue. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Poddington Bear, Ketza, Jazar, Big Lazy, Jason Leonard, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this week to everyone at Curious City, Tripod, and Criminal. And thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Studio in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.